Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason. And as we conclude this series on good politics, I couldn't be happier than to introduce to you our final guest, which is who is uh, Chet Edwards, Congressman Chet Edwards of Texas, who served uh, for five terms uh, in uh, Congress and before that, two terms in the state uh, Senate. And Chet, we're so thankful that you could be with us. George, thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Right. So, uh, Chet, uh, while uh, you uh, are a Democrat and served as such, uh, you really served at a time when it wasn't quite as harsh as we are going through right now in terms of the strictness of the partisan lines. And in fact, I think most people would say you had a reputation uh, as a person who uh, wasn't easily pigeonholed. You could uh, work with all kinds of people. Uh, can we just be nostalgic for a minute? And, uh, can, you, can you tell us more? I mean, you went to A&M and studied under Phil Graham, right? And yet, uh, you know, a, a Democrat and serving alongside these people? Well, in, in fact, in my last six years in Congress, I was the House Democrat that represented the most Republican district in America, represented by a Democrat. And most Republican districts were more Republican than mine. It, George, you know, we've gone through ups and downs in our cycles of partisanship in, in America. Uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said things about each other in the presidential oh. election of 1800 that you couldn't even legally print in a newspaper today. But I, I will tell you, I, uh, it, it saddens me that things are so partisan, not just in Washington, D.C., but in our neighborhoods, in our, in our home communities. And I think for democracy, democracy to, to survive, and it will, but for it to survive, we, we've got to have compromise, and compromise requires respect of others. And back in the 1980s and 1990s, when I served in the Texas Senate and U.S. House, you, you could differ on issues without having to hate someone. And I think yeah. we need to, uh, I don't want to turn the historic clock back on everything. I'm glad we live in a world of greater civil rights than we had uh, decades ago. But I wish we could turn the clock forward and bring back respect uh, and bipartisanship in our political arena. You know, I, I, I know it You've chronicled a little bit that it has been ups and downs uh, over time, uh, but a lot of people are trying to put their finger on when did things really change? And at least I know anecdotally, there was one time in particular when you were in Congress when uh, there, there was a kind of structural attempt to change the way uh, people work together. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Well, I was elected to Congress in 1990. And at that point, Democrats had, had controlled majority control of the House for over four decades. And Newt Gingrich was a backbencher Republican, and he had a vision, and it was a brilliant political vision. It was that the way Republicans could take back over the majority in the House was to tear down the House, to destroy its reputation. They even put that together as a congressman, a vocabulary list to use when you're talking about Democrats, unpatriotic, uh, and, and that's, that's probably one of the kinder uh, adjectives that, that he used. I don't blame Newt Gingrich for all the coarseness of our, not just our politics, but our society, our culture today. But I do think he, he really uh, was the, the, the forerunner of the kind of uh, mean-spirited politics we, we see to, today. And, um, you know, whether one's conservative or liberal isn't important to me. I can respect everyone. I, 
I think leadership in Washington does matter. Um, and frankly, I think President Trump's tone of bullying people or attacking them, dividing them uh, among creating fear among different groups, I think that exacerbated the already harsh partisan culture uh, that we were all living in. And then you had freshmen uh, congressmen who came in for orientation and things changed in terms of how that took place too, right? Well, exactly. In 1990, before I was sworn in, we went to Boston and, and Harvard University, had Democrats, Republicans, and our spouses uh, together. And we all got to know each other's people before we started casting votes uh, against each other. And for the 20 years I served in the U.S. House, George, I always felt a, a special bond to those Republicans. We might differ greatly on issues, but we wouldn't go to the floor and attack each other personally. And we would look for common ground rather than looking for ways to, to divide us. So yes, I think when Newt Gingrich ended that program where we got to know each other uh, as, as people before we became political elected officials in Congress, I think that really did uh, begin a serious change in the, in the tone of respect for people from the other party. Right. So you, uh, I, forgive me, I got it wrong. You were a 10-term uh, uh, congressman, right? Uh, yes. 20 years, that's right. And, and two terms of a senator uh, here in Texas. That's correct. Uh, eight years. So we have also issues now in Texas, and you served in the Senate at that time, and uh, we find ourselves increasingly in a deeply partisan state also. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with, uh, again, instead of just getting the work done and trying to find common cause, it, it really seems to be more and more, Chet, focused on how to win a primary rather than how to, uh, how to represent everyone in your state. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation right now around voter suppression or voter right. integrity, depending upon where you are in right. that. But, but gerrymandered districts are really a, a big part of this uh, struggle too, aren't they? I mean, we, uh, we have that coming up this fall in a special session. You know, I think there are two real causes, core causes of the political divisiveness we see today at the state and federal level. Uh, one is congressional redistricting. If, if, you're, if you draw a map and you have 70% Democratic district or 70% Republican district, you not only don't have reason to compromise, you're actually penalized if you cross the, the party line and work out compromises with the other party. The second, and I think this is really maybe the fundamental major cause of, of our political division and, and disrespect in America today, is our news sources have changed. It used to be Walter Cronkite, CBS, ABC, NBC, provided the primary source of TV political news. And, and they had to appeal to Democrats and Republicans if they were going to gain 33% market share. But fast forward to today, we've got cable shows. If you have 5% market share, far right or far left or special interest oriented, then you can make millions of dollars as a political commentator. So what I call the siloing of news yeah. has led to us becoming very divided. And the conventional wisdom is that the solution to our divisions, our politics, uh, our political divisions, is to start with new leadership, and, and that matters at the state and federal level. But I think we need to remember the first three words of the Constitution, we the people. Mm -hmm. I think we have to have a faith that each one of us can make a 
positive difference in our in our society and in our politics. And I, so I think the return of respect and empathy and humility in our political system uh, won't begin in Washington unless it begins with we the people and we start treating our neighbors who think differently from us uh, with respect and, and with empathy. You know, when, when you talk about treating our neighbors with respect and empathy, that brings up uh, a very religious point. I mean, uh, love your neighbor as yourself is right. fundamental through all of our religious traditions. And one of the things we talk about on these Good God podcasts is this connection of where we, we bring our faith to work. How, right. how does faith impact the way we live in the world? So uh, I, I think you began to, to talk about that a bit uh, just in that last answer, but, uh, but, but tell us more about how your vision of the world and your personal faith came together in your political life. George, it was my personal faith. I, I was raised as a Methodist and been married for 28 years to a Baptist preacher's daughter. <laughs> uh, it was my faith that uh, convinced me that loving thy neighbor as thyself isn't a command of good feelings. It's a command of action. Uh, and so I chose public service as one of many, many career paths that people can pursue to try to make a difference for, for my neighbor. Mm -hmm. I believe greatly in separation, the principle, constitutional principle of separation of church and state. But, mm -hmm. but people misunderstand that concept. It doesn't mean keeping people of faith out of government. It does mean keeping government out of our faith. Mm -hmm. And I, I think where we have to be careful is um, former Senator Sam Nunn said at the National Prayer Breakfast in the 1990s, just when he was retiring, something that I've never forgotten. He said, as I leave office, I, I struggle with what values of my faith do I have a right to turn into, or he's what sins, according to my faith, have the right to turn into crimes using the power of government. And I think it's a profound question. So mm -hmm. Yeah. I would I would just say that faith has been instrumental in in my going into public service and in my values in public service. But I tried to draw the line and, and be careful not to use government, the power of government and laws to force my faith on someone of a different faith or of, of no faith. Well, and this, I think, gets to one of the questions about where we find our way forward, because sometimes when we when we're dealing with this right now, we're dealing often with a, a very conservative view of the Christian faith that has gotten united with nationalism. So Christian nationalism has really raised its its head. Yes. And, uh, and, and there's a kind of um, failure to recognize uh, that faith has to be separated from our love of country, uh, even if it, uh, our faith brings us to serve it. Uh, but then there are people on the other side who react so strongly against that, that then it, they want to keep all of faith out of public life also. So how do we figure out, Chet, what is that uh, appropriate line where our faith is being brought to bear in order that the common good can be achieved uh, in our public life, and yet not imposed in such a way that it actually violates uh, our, our sort of covenant with one another as Americans? You know, it, it's a profound question, George, and I don't have a simple answer. You know, in my philosophy and my faith, I 
just felt the primary role of government and our private enterprise system was to give every child a fair chance to reach his or her highest God-given potential. Mm -hmm. And I think we can look for the common bonds and values of, of all faiths mm -hmm. and, and find the, the common bond of, of loving thy neighbor. And maybe in, perhaps we'll use different words, but loving thy neighbors ourself, caring for others. I think if we could use those common bonds to guide our, our legislative processes, but, but within those bonds, respect it. You know, some people have honest differences of opinion on how far the government's role sh should go sure. in uh, uh, helping. We've always had that struggle, haven't we? You know, I mean, that's from the very beginning. A absolutely. There's, there's no simple answer. And, you know, I, I just think humility and empathy would go a long way in improving our political system and, frankly, our culture and how we get along with, with neighbors. Um, I, I realized a long time ago, I can't, I can't understand calculus or black holes in outer space or the concept of infinity. So when it comes to politics, why should I be so arrogant to think that my position is always right and somebody else's position is wrong? So that's where I develop my humility in politics. And from that uh, comes a respect for others. And the other is empathy. I just don't think we try to empathize with each other. And if we could do that, uh, we could we could find common bonds, you know, quality of opportunity, uh, giving every child a chance to reach his or highest God-given potential. Those, I think those are fundamental values that could bring us together, conservative, moderates, and liberals. And then then have our honest differences on specific policies. You know, you talk about empathy, and I think you were very close with uh, the late John Lewis, uh, who, with whom you served in Congress. And I think he really epitomized a lot of the things you're talking about. Uh, there's there's a, uh, a bill uh, before Congress now, uh, yes. in his name. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, his uh, influence on your understanding of public service. Of the thousands of people that I served with at the state and federal level, I respect John Lewis more than any other. You know, in his early 20s, he was leading the civil rights movement, uh, along with Dr. King and four others of the big six of the civil rights movement. And John was nearly killed in Selma for leading the march for Fundamental Voting, Voting Rights Act in 1965. He's in prison more than 40 times. But in all the years we worked so closely together, I never felt one ounce of hatred or resentment from John. He once hugged a, a man who came into the office with his 11-year-old grandson under his arm and said, I want to ask for your forgiveness, Congressman Lewis. I, I nearly beat you to death in Selma. And John, instead of being anger, he, he grabbed the grandfather, hugged him and said, you're my brother and I love you. And I'm still moved when I think about the lesson that taught that 11-year-old grandchild. And John uh, was passionate about civil rights and about the values of equality for all, but he was never disrespectful to others and, and never let hatred or bitterness seep into his body, mind, or soul. And it, if we could use John Lewis as a role model of Christian love and action, uh, we'd be a better country. And he did say one of the untold secrets of the civil rights movement was that its ultimate success was it was built around a model of Christian love. They did not return hate with hate. They right. return hate with love. And by doing that, they they won over 
Americans to the, to the cause of civil rights in the 50s and 60s? You know, I think when I think about John Lewis, Chet, the other thing that comes to mind is that John Lewis didn't get to be John Lewis later in life by planning when he was in his 20s to be that. You right. know, right. He, he, he could not have crossed the, uh, uh, the bridge there in Selma and uh, put himself in position to be beaten and then put in prison numerous times. And in those moments thought to himself, that's okay, this is all part of a great big strategy that's gonna get me in Congress someday and, uh, and have me honored by others. I mean, I think that's part of the struggle now that people, uh, young people need to pay attention to the fact that you can only do what's right in front of you. And you have to sort of leave the rest of history and your legacy to God and whatever opportunity may come but it's about character in the moment, isn't it? George, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. Uh, I think one of the most inspiring speeches I've ever read is Robert Kennedy's 1996 speech in apartheid South Africa, where he said, human history is shaped by countless acts of courage and belief. And, and his point to that audience and to you and me and to young people, especially to young people today, mm -hmm. is that each of us, as a God-given gift to make a difference. And we have a, a moral and religious obligation in my faith uh, mm -hmm. to do so. And, and I, ex a specific example, I saw this uh, two years ago, an African-American co-ed was accosted by four white Baylor male students who told her she didn't belong there because of the color of her skin. The next morning, as she walked out of her first class of that day, hundreds of Baylor students surrounded her and walked her to her next class as a show of respect. They didn't wait for an administrator to tell them to do it. They just felt that moral, religious motivation to, to be an agent of change. And they made the world a better place when they did that. Maybe they won't make it in the history books for that, but they certainly made a difference in this world. So we have to have this belief, you're right, that you know each of us has given this, been given this precious ability to impact people's lives in a positive way. And we just, have to understand we can make a difference and do it and do it respectfully. You know, you mentioned Baylor. Uh, you and I, uh, neither one of us uh, went to Baylor or graduated from Baylor, but we've both sort of been adopted by the alumni, yes. I, I think. Uh, and and so, and of course, you you serve in Waco and live there and, and everything. So, you know, you, you have more of a, a sense of Baylor than even I do, although as a Baptist preacher, I have quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but it, there is a sense in which Baylor is um, almost a crucible in which a lot of these things are being worked out uh, now. And they're having, you know, a, a, a tough time, but it's not, to me, it's not just a reflection of the Baylor culture, it's a reflection of the larger culture and the wrestling with, with all these contemporary issues and how they find their way uh, as uh, institutions. It, it is, and I know the LGBTQ issue and right. uh, officially recognizing student organizations for right. those students is, is a challenging issue. And it, it, it won't be easy to go through, but I, I just think if, is, for those of us that are people of faith, if we begin with the belief that we're all God's children, mm -hmm. that we have a right to have different viewpoints and different religious perspectives, but that we're all God's children. If we begin, if step one is loving our neighbors as thyself, respecting we're all God's children, then we can work through these 
these issues, uh, even when they're honest differences of opinion. And for the secular community and for those that don't have faith uh, in my Democratic Party on the far left, sometimes I think they've shown disrespect to people of faith. And so even as I criticize the far right for trying to push Christian nationalism, uh, which I, I think brings Christianity down to a lower level of politics uh, and is somewhat blasphemous, I, I would challenge my Democratic friends on the progressive and far left side to have respect for people of faith and right. whatever their views are, if they're genuinely held, uh, they should should respect them. If we could all begin with that perspective, I think we can yeah. work through these problems. For right or wrong, there is a feeling among people on the right that uh, those on the progressive left, uh, the languages look down on us, you know, yes. that they have a, a sense of um, uh, elitism about them and a kind of educated uh, privilege and, uh, and, right. and don't um, value the, the culture and um, way of life of their fellow citizens who differ from them. And I, I think, you know, we, sh we, we can talk all we want structurally about uh, the media and about right. voting rights and uh, about uh, different visions of America. But when, when you get right down to that place of interaction of uh, one person to another, uh, it, it really does come down to that respect, doesn't it? That sense of whether you really, somebody who is standing in front of you really believes that they matter to you. Right. I, you know, I, I never forget the advice of a four-star army general who mm -hmm. said, Congressman, uh, before the soldiers care what I say to them, they have to know I care about them. Nice. I think whether we come from the far right, the far left, uh, people of faith or not, if we could begin with the respect um, and, and empathy, then I just think we can, you know, our democracy will do well. And, and I'm, I'm confident about the long-term future of our democracy. We, we will work through these divisive times. We survived uh, the horrible atrocity of slavery, sometimes even in the name of religion, yeah, yeah. For over a century, segregation, we're still fighting civil rights. But I would say, I don't want to turn America back the old days, uh, before civil rights, before women's rights. Right. Um, and, and so I think America, we go two steps forward and one step back, sometimes three steps forward and four steps back. But long term, I think the goodness of the American people will, will prevail. Well, I hope you're right. You know, I, I will say that that is uh, a hopeful and optimistic view of things that is is sort of being challenged today, it seems to me, uh, by those who think that the steps being taken by the parties in power at the state level and prior to that uh, with the previous administration uh, represent an existential threat to democracy. Yes. Uh, that if we continue in this path of gerrymandered districts that enfranchise one party for you know, 10 years at a time, essentially, uh, mm -hmm. if, we, if we limit the, the voting uh, rights of, uh, of, of everyone, especially when these voting rights bills right. in states all over America seem uh, clearly to be targeted toward uh, suppressing the vote of, uh, of, of, of the people of color, especially, uh, you know, this, this represents a, a, a sense of 
existential uh, despair among people about democracy. Uh, but I hear in your voice that notwithstanding all of those things, you think we'll find a way through it and we'll rise. You know, George, I do. I, I don't minimize the challenges. I think the January 6th attacks on our capital and the yeah. President Trump not accepting the peaceful transition of power, one of the hallmarks of, of mm -hmm. our democracy and any democracy, those are serious challenges to our democracy. And I do not diminish that. But rolling back the Civil Rights Act of 1965, my goodness, all these, all these years later, those are serious threats. And I want to be clear, I don't minimize the seriousness of, of them. But, you know, I go back to John Lewis. I'd sit down with John in the Democratic cloakroom just off the House floor during a series of, of votes or late night meetings. And I'd say, John, you know, what do you say to young people when you see the discrimination that's occurring all these years after you fought for civil rights in the 50s and 60s? And he said, Chet, you know, I'd say to every young person that they have to understand how far forward we've come yeah. and not to be discouraged, uh, not to don't become a cynic and tune out of the system. You've got to you know, be grateful for the progress we've made but keep fighting for that, that cause because we, we have a long way to go. But don't forget, we've come a long way. So I, once again, I'd use John Lewis as my inspiration. And I, I think if John could go through his life as an African-American at a time when he was nearly beaten to death because of the color of his skin, right. his fight for civil rights, if, if he could go through that and not become cynical about our country or mm -hmm. its future, then surely uh, it should be far easier for me to not lose faith in our country and, and to have faith in its future. How we, how we get to, uh, to that promised land, I'm not quite sure. I'm not that smart, but I think our democracy will eventually work. Long-term, I believe in, in the American people. Well, as we wrap up, I, I just wanna ask one more thing of you then, Chet. You know, I, I was uh, in, a, in a group the other day and uh, someone said, uh, that uh, she was talking to uh, a, um, a neighbor and that neighbor said, I don't do politics, you know. And this politician said, well, honey, if you don't do politics, politics will do you, you know. And uh, so I, I think there's some truth to that. But what I, what I want to ask you is if, if, if you had this moment to speak to young people, well, to people of any age and say, yes, I know it's broken. Yes, I know there's dirty politics. Yes, I know it feels acrimonious today and all of that. How do they get involved? What is, it feels like there's a, a, a disconnect between the ordinary person and uh, people in office and in the political process. They don't know, they're afraid of how to uh, participate. What would you tell people? Here are some things you can do. I would say one to young people, believe that you can make a difference. I genuinely deeply believe that. Number two, I think John Lewis and I would say to them that you have social tools as young people today through so the power of social media to create a, a movement that, that the civil rights leaders wow. in the 50s and 60s could have only dreamed about. You don't have to own a newspaper or a television station right. to have your voice heard. So there's great opportunity for young people to make a difference. And if they will believe that, uh, just as those Baylor students believe they could make a difference by yeah. escorting that student to the next class, 
uh, they will make a difference and they'll live a life of meaning if they do that. You know, I also think that if you could, if you can go down to the courthouse, you can, you can become a, a volunteer deputy voter registrar and you can walk door to door just asking people to register to vote. And then all of that turns into, hey, I, I can do something, right? Absolutely. At the age of 26, I lost my first race for Congress by 121 votes out of 83,000 votes cast, registering people to vote. And if one doesn't think that people can make a difference, I'm glad Stacey Abrams wasn't convinced yeah. of that. Who would have ever thought a year ago or 10 years ago to control the United States Senate will be decided uh, by a young Jewish man and an African-American pastor <laughs> being elected from the state of Georgia. Uh, you could have probably, probably gotten pretty good odds on that if, we, if, if you weren't a Baptist minister in Las Vegas. Uh, right. Get good odds on, on, on that, uh, that bet. Well, that, on that note, I don't think we could uh, exemplify hope in the political process more than those improbable odds. So you're right. Absolutely. There, there is hope. And, uh, uh, you know, whether we're people of faith or not people of faith, I, I hope we can continue to do what you encourage people to do. And that is look for our common bonds, uh, love our neighbors as ourselves, and, and understand we all can and should try to make a difference in this world. Terrific. Chet Edwards, thank you so much for joining me and for thank talking you, to our Good God audience. Uh, this is the perfect way to cap off these conversations about good politics, and you were a man of good politics, and we're grateful. George, thank you for the sermon of your life. Uh, you're an inspiration to so many of us. Thank you. Very good. Take care. Thank you. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.